The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. It's a real pleasure to welcome uh, to the show David Ratner, CEO at uh, Realm. David's been involved in several exits, including Carrier Access and OpenWave, and has also helped scale the likes of Cineverse and Seven globally. So, uh, David, a very warm welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Gary, and thank you for having me. So, David, just to kick things off, tell us a little bit about your early career and how you made the journey from uh, computer scientist to successful CEO. Sure. Thanks, Gary. You know, I started off and I got my PhD in computer science, um, and I started off in a very technical manner. I, my first job, I was the person who carried the pager. So when any customer in the world had an issue, my pager went off and I was responsible for logging on, fixing it and solving it. Um, as part of that, I built some of the largest messaging systems in the world, um, and some of which are still running at wireless operators today. But at some point in my technical career, I had the advantage of partnering with a former Procter & Gamble brand manager. And he taught me business and I taught him technology and that was a great partnership. So I moved over to kind of the more of the business side of the house, ran product management teams um, and then running large organizations. Uh, I was a COO of a wireless messaging company. I was CEO of OpenWave Messaging. I was president of the enterprise division at Cineverse um, and had a variety of roles that led up to where I am now as CEO of uh, a startup called Realm. That uh, experience you had of, of swapping skills and experiences, you teaching someone some of your more technical ideas and approaches and, and that other person teaching you some of the more commercial approaches to life to business. Was that something that just happened? Was it serendipity or was it a planned exchange? To be honest, I think I'm one of those rare, very technical people who actually likes talking to people more than interacting with a computer. And so (laughs) early on in my career, one of the labels that I got was I was the technical guy who could explain technology to non-technical people. And so that carried me into the field. I uh, had the opportunity to meet with CTOs and other executives in a pre-sales capacity and a post-sales capacity to explain how our technology worked, to explain how it would interface with their systems, et cetera. And that's what helped put me on the path to not just working on the business side of the house, but helped put me on the path to various executive titles. It's great that you uh, grabbed those opportunities when, uh, when they came along. Uh, when we previously spoke You mentioned the challenge at Seven of introducing a second product, second product line, when the first product that you'd launched was selling really well and generating excellent revenues. So I'd love to hear a little more about that challenge and how you overcame that challenge. Yeah, you know, one of the most difficult things to do inside of a company is figure out how you launch a second product line and how you balance your resources, your investment level, and your focus across the two. Seven started off as a wireless messaging company and uh, had some fits and starts. But um, after we partnered with a large handset manufacturer, 
that was global actually grew quite rapidly. And we had uh, deployments all over the world and, and were very profitable. But we definitely saw the messaging business itself becoming commoditized. And what we wanted to do was refocus our technology into some of the newer areas in mobile that weren't currently being solved. The key problem is, so how do you figure out how to do that balance? And if you do it too quickly or you do it the wrong way, what you can actually do is kill your existing revenue stream before the new revenue stream has a chance to build up. And so you want to be very careful about how you assign engineers, about how you shift the company, about how you shift your overall focus so that you don't lose opportunities on the side of the business that's working well before you have the opportunity to really build up opportunities on the uh, second side of the house. That makes sense. That's going to be a great insight for some uh, entrepreneurs who are just uh, starting out or getting that first product line to be, uh, to be successful. I know that one of your mantras is the enemy of best is not worst. The enemy of best is good enough. So what uh, experiences, what business uh, experiences have prompted that mantra for you? Yeah, you know, let's stay with Seven. So Seven made messaging clients for mobile phones before iPhone and, and before all the handset manufacturers had their own. And so if you think about pre-iPhone days and you wanted to do messaging on a handset, you basically had to buy a BlackBerry. That was the only solution. And companies like Seven said, no, 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 that's wrong. You should be able to buy whatever phone you want and layer on a software package to get your messages from Gmail and your photos from Shutterfly. And you could configure it totally differently to get your messages from Yahoo and your photos from Facebook or however you want to go configure messages and calendar and contacts and photos and videos and all the other different kinds of data you want to synchronize with the internet. And so Seven made those kinds of clients and we built them for Symbian and Brew and Java and Windows and all different kinds of uh, of mobile devices. Once handset manufacturers started realizing that this was an important area that they needed to move into, we ran into this fact where being the best isn't necessarily, you know, always a winning strategy because we would go to mobile operators and have the following discussion and we'd say, look, my email client is much better on the battery life than the one that comes native on your handset. And they would all say, yes, that's true, but it might only be 10% better. Maybe it's 20% better. And this thing that comes on the handset is free and you're charging me for yours. And so even though I agree 100% that your product is better, it's not so much better that I'm willing to spend the time and the money to take off what's on this handset today and put yours on. Your client would have to be 100% better, 200% better on battery life, on network optimization, on a variety of different things. And so the reality was what happened is because of a distribution strategy, because of a different go-to-market strategy, the absolute best product in the world was not going to win because this perfect product that Seven had didn't have the right distribution strategy as this okay product from some of the other handset manufacturers. And so what Seven had to do was change our go-to-market and change our distribution strategy. We ended up bundling our software natively embedded into a handset manufacturer so that we could now ride this same 
go-to-market wave and therefore start to gather more customers and more clients from that perspective. Because if we hadn't have done that, we would have absolutely lost in the market where enemy of our perfect client was not the worst client. The enemy of our perfect client was a good enough client that came for free. Another topic that you're keen on, I know, is messaging. Uh, if we switch to open wave, you had to work really hard on getting the messaging, the communications on point. And you came up with the idea for targeting your customers or engaging with your customers who were the, the mobile network operators of the war for the consumer. So how did you come up with that concept and how did that shake up open waves um, approach to the market communication with the market yeah. yeah so let me talk about that a little bit so in 2011 i was um, hired by the board of open wave systems to help them sell off the businesses and we sold them off in pieces some of the pieces got bought by various different places and as part of those transactions I was installed as CEO of a company called OpenWave Messaging, um, which obviously focused on the messaging part of the business. Now, this was in 2012, and this is at the time where social networks are all the rave, and Mark Zuckerberg is standing up on stage saying Facebook will kill email, and other people are saying, you know, my kids don't use email, so why do I care about it? And it was really clear that we needed to change the conversation. Um, you can't go to an executive at SoftBank or an executive at Verizon and have a conversation about email. It's too small and they don't care. What I had to do was take a step back and look at how the world was changing and what's happening. And what was happening was more than just email versus Facebook versus this versus that. What was happening was a realization that everybody was competing for this consumer from the perspective of his or her identity and his or her data and their storage. And when I say identity, you know, there's that realization that, you know, even though Facebook was this social product, what do you use to log into Facebook? Use an email address. Even though Twitter is fundamentally a mobile service, 99% of the people authenticate to Twitter with an email address. How do you log into iTunes? Use an email. What happens if you haven't been to Facebook in a few days? What do they do to try and get you to come back? They send you an email. And so it was a recognition that you know everyone's competing for these users' identity and their data because that's where the future of understanding your consumer is really going to come from. And so we packaged this up in, a, in this notion of what I call the war for the consumer between the mobile operators and the social networks and the web players and the handset vendors and everybody else who was competing in this war for the consumer. And this allowed us to tell a very different story. And I could have a conversation with a very high-level executive at SoftBank or at Comcast or at Vodafone or wherever the case may be. And rather than talk about messaging, we could talk about what's happening in the world. And we could talk about how there's a war for the consumer going on around identity and their data. And, and the executives would sit there and say, yes, that's absolutely what's happening in the world. And then we could talk about, so what are you doing in order to help win in your part of the war? And shouldn't you think about X, Y, and Z? And shouldn't you think about these kinds of features? And oh, by the way, now let's talk about open wave messaging and how I can help you win in that war. And that was a way that we had created in order to change the conversation 
up-level the conversation so that we could actually be talking to executives about our company, but more from the perspective of what's happening in the world rather than a company or, or, or technical pitch. And that's what allowed us to actually take open wave messaging from not having sold a new customer in 12 plus months to all of a sudden changing the landscape and getting new customers on board and getting people sitting there saying, okay, I understand what you as a company is doing. Have you leveraged those experiences and those lessons and started to make sure that messaging and product quality are, are on point with, uh, with Realm when you're still a pretty early stage business? Let's talk for a few minutes first about what Realm is. So Realm started purely as an open source mobile database on the mobile device and by all respects was incredibly successful doing that. To date, we've had 3.5 billion app installs of our mobile database, well over 100,000 developers using it today, everyone from the likes of Fortune 100 companies like Starbucks and Netflix, all the way down through indie developers. So then this question of, okay, that's all open source, what's the monetization strategy? And the monetization strategy is, is connecting that open source database with cloud services, either in my cloud or in your cloud, to help improve that app experience. And what I mean by that app experience is, look, we've all had the case where you're sitting on the airplane and those apps just fundamentally don't work anymore because they can't talk to the cloud, they can't talk to some data source. And we've kind of created this world where everyone has a mobile device and the mobile device is the future of work, but yet it's only guaranteed to work if you're not mobile. Because I could walk across the street and drop into 3G mode, or I could walk across the street and not have any connectivity, and all of a sudden I can't do anything anymore. And so what Realm allows you to do is Realm provides edge sync capabilities to actually move the data to the device so that you can respond and do work with the device, even in a high latency mode, even if you don't have any connection at all. And then Realm takes care of the synchronization and conflict resolution of updates in both directions. We see a lot of uses around healthcare, around productivity apps, around field service, business content, point of sale, industrial IoT. We're even talking to connected cars and all different kinds of places where it's mission critical and the app just has to work. If that's what Realm is and that's where Realm is going and, and we see some rapid growth around those areas, how have I incorporated some of the things in my past? Well, you know, especially for a small startup, the focus has to be building a product which is good enough for what you need to solve right now. Especially in a small startup, you don't always know exactly how your customers are going to want to use the product. It's not always easy to understand exactly what their use case is until you build a product and you get in market and you start partnering with your customers, right? You have to change the game to stop thinking of it as me selling a product to my customer and more thinking of me partnering with my customers in order to deliver a solution to market. And by doing so, you want to make sure that you build a good product that they can rely on, but you may not know exactly which features are going to be most important. And so you need to be able to partner with them in order to gain that understanding and use the market forces to help guide where your product direction needs to go. What's most important? What do I need to go do next? How do I get the next 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 customers on board? What's most important for me to go focus on now? 
And that's absolutely what we're doing with Realm after we've launched our cloud. We've gotten a set of initial customers on board. We understand what they're doing. We're driving a very customer-focused, customer-first policy to understand what are our customers across all these different verticals trying to do, and therefore, where do we need to take the product? Making sure that we're keeping in mind that notion of building something which is good enough for what we need to go do and making certain that we understand where the market needs to go. You know, part of that is making sure that we understand our customers and what problems they're trying to solve. Remember, it's not a technical sale. I may have described that product in a very technical way around edge synchronization capabilities. But the truth of the matter is, is when we're talking to customers, it's all about solving their problems. It's all about explaining what they're trying to do. And in many cases, you might take their app and put your phone in airplane mode and say, hey, look, this is the experience when you're disconnected. Did you realize that? Did you realize this is what your customers are going through? Did you realize that, you're, that, that people can't use this app to do work when the phone drops into 3G mode? Look what happens, right? Making sure that they understand that use case, right? So remember, you're not going in and selling a technical product. You're going in and solving a higher level problem. And that higher level problem is how do I increase your revenue? How do I get more users using your app? How do I solve your business problems? And how can Realm help solve that for you? David, with so many use cases and so many problems that Realm can solve, doesn't that itself create a bit of a dilemma for you in terms of how exactly to pitch the product, the solution, and how to get a consistent message on point that's really going to grab the attention of your target customers? So it does if you try and go too wide too quickly. So there's a lot of different things that Realm can do. And what we're focused on right now is the mission of enabling mobile applications and various IoT applications to work correctly even in periods of high latency or no connection at all and be able to push content in both directions and be able to synchronize that content and resolve conflicts. Now, the differences between the healthcare and and the productivity or the field service, they all have the exact same business need. So rather than describe it as a technical sale, what we do is we go into each customer and we simply start the conversation with, so tell me about your business. What are your issues and problems? How does it work in these environments? And here's how Realm can help. And so what we do is we focus entirely on that single purpose use case, and we've identified a variety of different market verticals that all have the same problem. So we can have one technical solution that simply gets delivered into various different market verticals. And let's look forward for a few moments. What's your 2020 vision, David? What do the next three years look like for you and the team at Realm? So, you know, if you think about what Realm is doing today for mobile devices in 2018, and you look into, you know, 2019, and we're starting to do that for various IoT and industrial IoT devices like connected hard hats and connected cars and other kinds of things. And as you look into 2020, you now realize that that Realm, you know, has, has the makings of the essence of what people are starting to call edge computing. And so, you know, if you think about cloud and the cloud computing model, at a high level, we, in the very beginning, we had mainframe computers, which were basically cloud computing. 
right? We had an interface that was local. We just used it to access the central resource. Then we kind of moved a little bit to, you can call it the edge or local devices where everyone had their own PC. And that worked well for a while. And then people moved back to the cloud for storage and, and other kinds of capabilities. But people are now realizing that, hey, look, again, we might need to move closer to the edge. Autonomous cars fundamentally won't work if every decision that they make has to go up to the cloud to make a decision. A variety of IoT devices fundamentally won't work if you can't put the data on the device. And so in all of these worlds, what you need is the ability to put data out to the true edge. And that's exactly what Realm does as an edge compute platform is allow you to put data at the edge of the conversation, at the edge device and synchronize that data back to the cloud when needed, resolve the conflicts, but allow all that computing to happen locally for instantaneous decisions, you know, augmented reality, virtual reality. They, they need that data locally at the edge and they need to synchronize that data back and forth to make that conversation, to make that experience work well. And so I think as Realm conquers the mobile world and conquers the IoT world and enters into 2020, you'll start to see Realm turn into a little bit more of what I might call a generic edge compute platform. Nice phrase. Let's talk about mentoring for a few moments. They say being a CEO is a lonely life, a lonely existence. Who do you reach out to for advice and guidance? You know, it's interesting. I spent this past Sunday in Amsterdam at a conference with approximately 40 other startup CEOs. And so number one is I like networking with other people who are in similar positions. I think regardless of our age and regardless of our experience, we can always learn new things from others who have been there or others who are going through the same kind of trials and tribulations. And so I like networking with my peers and I use that a lot for guidance and for advice. Number two is I've been fortunate growing up in Silicon Valley to have some really great mentors. And, you know, one of my early mentors was, a, was an executive from Cisco who had a lot of successes in his career. I got to learn a lot from him. Uh, one of my mentors, as I mentioned early on, was a former Procter & Gamble brand manager. Uh, he's now a partner at a large uh, VC in Silicon Valley. I've had the opportunity to learn a lot from him. And so, you know, oftentimes as when I have questions or when I need advice, I go to these people. I schedule breakfast with other CEOs in Silicon Valley and I say, hey, can I pick your brain? Here's what's going on. You know, I met a couple great CEOs from all over the world, like I said this past Sunday, and connected with them on LinkedIn so that I have the opportunity to ping and compare notes. Uh, one gentleman and I sat down and we talked about our two companies and we decided that we have almost the exact same issues in the exact same company and the exact same thing going on. And, you know, we, we left the conference knowing that we're going to uh, stay in touch and talk amongst ourselves about how to solve those kinds of problems and, and what to do next. Cool. Well, obviously, uh, <laughs> obviously you two are going to be uh, buddies over the next uh, couple of years sharing your experiences and your learnings. That's, uh, that's great to hear. What's the one thing you've learned about being a technology entrepreneur over the last decade or so that you really wish you'd known when you started out? You know, so I think, it, I think it's two things. First is the best tech does not always win. And there are plenty more examples 
of good or so-so technology with great marketing or great distribution models that win out over the best technology with a weaker go-to-market or a weaker distribution model. And so you need to remember that having the absolute best product in the world does not matter if you don't have the right distribution strategy, if you don't have the right go-to-market strategy. That's number one. Number two is that you cannot underestimate the importance of culture inside of a company. And while the right culture may not change what happens you know, exactly today, uh, the right culture and the right team are really the things that will make you successful in the long run over tomorrow. Hiring for cultural fit is way more important than hiring for the exact skill set. You may not know exactly what you need everyone to do six months from now. And so that skill set aspect may need to change. But if you hire for culture, you hire the right kinds of people who are adaptable, who can learn, that you want to work with, who want to be part of the team, that's really the thing that sets up a company for success. And so I have spent a lot of time in my past companies making sure that, that we work equally on culture and what we want our culture to be and how we drive the right culture and the right spirit and the right level of teamwork and communication inside the company as much as having the right technology and the right go-to-market and the right distribution. Have you actually had your fingers burnt then by hiring someone who had all the skills, experiences that appeared to be relevant to your needs, but was a cultural mismatch and therefore didn't last the course and, and maybe was even somewhat disruptive? I have seen this happen a variety of times. I tend to focus my interviews more on cultural fit and stylistic uh, kinds of things than on exact skill set. I want to hire for smarts and cultural fit rather than do you exactly know the skill that we have today. Um, but I've definitely worked in companies where I've seen people hire what may have looked like on paper the absolute right candidate. But because of their cultural style, because of how they acted, which may have been perfectly valid for a different company, it just wasn't valid for where they were. They just did not fit in. They couldn't get work done. And they ended up being more of a negative to the company than a positive. So if someone has got these two things sorted, if they've got cultural fit figured out and they're building a team, selecting people, that um, are really well matched in terms of the organizational culture. And if they've really figured out the go-to-market, um, if they understand this idea that they don't necessarily need the very best technology on the planet, but they do need the best go-to-market strategy on the planet, and they've got those two things figured out, cultural fit, go-to-market, both on point. Is there anything else that can stop a company going often being super successful or are there other criteria as well that can still be hurdles that need to be overcome? Some thoughts. First, I want to stress one thing. Even though I think Realm has a great go-to-market and distribution strategy, we also, I believe, do have the best tech in the world. So I think we're lucky from that perspective uh, compared to our competitors, compared to other solutions in the market. I went and evaluated them and I really do believe Realm is best of both sides which is part of the reason um, that I think it's going to be highly successful. But even if you have the right culture, even if you have the right product for where you need to be right now, there always needs to be a little bit of 
I'll call it luck in the timing of what you have. There's plenty of examples of companies that had really interesting tech and maybe a great go-to-market strategy, but their timing was just wrong and the market wasn't ready for what they had. You know, I think you, know, you can look at companies like Uber and they, they timed the market very well in terms of where the technology was and where people's needs were. Uber had tried that, let's say, pre-iPhone. It just wouldn't have worked. Right. And so th- there has to be a little bit of aspect of understanding of the timing and understanding of where is consumer behavior, what are enterprises worried about, and or do you have the product coming out at the right time or not? And then last but not least, but very important is the team that you have. I mean, it plays into culture a little bit, but do you have the right team? Do you have the people who can get it done that you can make sure that you can hold accountable to get it done, that knows how to work together as a team that perhaps have seen this story before and know what to do? And so I think if you have the right team, if you have your timing right, you have the right culture, and you have the right go-to-market and distribution strategy, you have a lot of the recipes for success. That's excellent. advice there, David. And I think on that note, because you've really summarized the whole piece there, we'll wrap up there. Thank you so much for joining me today and uh, and sharing many, many candid insights. So I really appreciate the candor of, uh, of your answers. You've been very open and uh, I'm sure those listening will learn plenty from uh, the topics you've so openly discussed. Thank you very much for having me, Gary. I appreciate the time. This episode of the Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.